Hi, thanks for joining us today at ABC Online. I'm Lori Camp, the Connections Coordinator. I wanna tell you a couple of the things that we have coming up this week. The first one is we have Senior Breakfast. Senior Breakfast is gonna be at nine o'clock. It's in E102. It's for anyone who's over age 50, and it includes a free breakfast, fellowship, and then we hear from an encouraging speaker. On Thursday, we have Mom to Mom. Mom to Mom's either at nine in the morning or at seven at night. It's for moms of young kids. It's a great chance to hang out with some peer moms and then also get to hear some perspective from some mentor moms. So I'd encourage you to come to that and you can sign up for it online. We do need to have you register for childcare ahead of time. Next, we have our annual meeting. Everyone's been talking about this, so we hope that you can come. We're gonna do pizza from 11.45 to 12.30. It's $5 for both pizza and salad. And then we'll meet together in the worship center for our annual meeting where members can vote on our elders. Finally, we wanna invite you out to our graduation for Mighty Oaks. So Mighty Oaks is a ministry partner of ABC and they host week-long retreats for both military and law enforcement. This one's gonna be for law enforcement and these retreats are for that specific group who is dealing with struggles related to work life, post-traumatic stress, and just kind of the daily challenges that this specific group faces. So we really wanna come out and we wanna recognize them for taking part in this program and celebrate the fact that they completed it. So if you join us, we're gonna have a barbecue at 5.30. You can bring either a side dish or a dessert. And then at 6.30, we'll meet together in the worship center. Thanks so much, and I hope you have a great Sunday. Well, welcome to ABC. Thanks so much for joining us online. Uh, just a quick reminder, uh, we have services on campus at 8 o'clock, at 9 o'clock, and at 1045. We would love to have you join us down there. Um, if, if for whatever reason uh, you're not able to come down to campus, though, we're glad you're tuning in. Um, and whether or not you got a family at home that's sick or um, got work schedules and travel schedules that keep you from being at church. Um, we're glad you're here and sticking with us in this series. Um, hope to see you back on campus real soon. Um, we're in this series through Matthew, and I'm loving this. I don't know if you've tracked with us the last couple weeks, but um, last week, Jake shared a really important message on the Christmas story, really the birth of Christ, that I think provides such an important foundation for the rest of the gospel, that if you missed last Sunday's message, uh, go back and listen to it, because I think it's gonna be really helpful as we kind of dive in. Um, really this, this take-home line of, uh, Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Um, that's really the whole entire gospel summed up in one verse right there in Matthew chapter one. So go back and listen to that. Uh, but we're gonna continue on. As I continue to think about our culture and world um, that we live in as compared to the culture and world that Matthew's writing to and, and that Jesus was born into, um, I become concerned and I've got this kind of growing concern uh, that we've lost our curiosity, that our world is no longer asking some important questions. And I think it may simply be that we just know too much, or rather we think we know too much. Information today, and you know this, is disposable. If, uh, if there's a supply and demand world of information where content or the value of content is dependent on its accessibility, then it's cheap, right? 
There's content everywhere. You can access it quickly. You can access a ton of it, more than you can digest, more that you can process. You can literally get the answer to anything. I remember back to when I was a kid, we had like uh, volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica. If you were like the rich kid in the neighborhood, then you had like the whole set of volumes. I remember we didn't have, we had like three of them. And so when you have a question about something, if you're thinking like, man, I wonder how a diesel motor works, then you'd go over to your volumes of the encyclopedia and we only had A, B, and C. And so then you'd go to try to grab D. Oh, shoot. I can't learn about diesel motors because I don't have the right volume. But some other kid had all sets and so then you go look up anything you want and then you hope that it's one of those topics they chose to put pictures and diagrams and other things in so you could really spend some time processing it and every now and then you'd open up a, a topic and you look in the book there, flip through the pages and it'd be like one single little paragraph and you'd be so bummed and that's all you could know about that thing because that's all that there was in the encyclopedia. Not so today, right? You can pull out your phone and and Google anything and you can come up with pages and pages and pages and pages of content about any subject. Sometimes that's true stuff. Sometimes it's not true. <laughs> Wikipedia, by the way, doesn't hold a candle to Britannica uh, because people just write whatever the heck they think they want to say about something and believe that it's true. And so you've got all these pages of information, whether or not it's true. And I think as a result, tell me if you agree with this, one of the greatest cultural challenges we face isn't arriving at the right answers. That one of our greatest cultural challenges is being willing to continue asking the question. Does that make sense to you? Because when information is so readily accessible, at times we tend to stop asking the question. How does this work? Well, I don't know. Well, I could Google it if I wanted to, but that's okay. Well, how, well, why is it this way? Or where do these things come from? Or in what region is this? Well, we stop asking the question because we know the information is readily available. I don't have to go looking for it. It's not fun to go find a volume of Encyclopedia Britannica and see what the professionals or the um, experts say on any given topic because I can find it and look for it anywhere all the time and have more information than I could possibly read, study, or digest. And so apathy becomes this symptom of an info-overloaded world where we're desensitized and we would rather at times, and this may be true of you or not, I know I'm making some generalizations, where people would rather spend some time in a virtual world in which they could create and generate than explore the world that's been created for us to have curiosity towards, to continue exploring, to continue discovering a world of beauty and a world of wonder. And yet we somehow lost that wonder. So this morning, I'm going to urge you, Christian, to be curious. Discover. Don't stop looking. Don't stop asking the questions. Don't be content with knowing that the answers are all out there, and so you therefore don't need to continue seeking. Continue to be curious. Renew your curiosity for the world that God has designed. It's a mysterious world that's designed to be discovered. Look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Dig, search, 
seek, discover, continue looking, look for truth, look for Jesus, look for God, look for his word, discover what God has for us. Let's be hungry and eager and curious Christians. I want to introduce you to some really curious people this morning in Matthew chapter two. Let me pray for us. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter two so you can follow along as I read. Father, we're so grateful for your word. I'm so thankful for the truth that exists in your word. I'm so thankful that every time we go to read and process and digest, Lord, we discover more truth about you. May we look for it and never stop. May we continue seeking and never give up. Lord, may we be curious about who you are, where you are in our world, where you're working, and what you have for us. So lead us even now as we read this passage and show us what you have for us this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So let me read for you this passage in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold... The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. This is the story of the Magi or the wise men. Let's talk about the Magi for just a second here. Curious men, people on a journey seeking Jesus, the king of the Jews. They see a star in the east. They travel to Jerusalem. They end up in the center of town. And in my opinion, uh, they cause a ruckus. That's basically what it says here, that Herod was troubled, as was all of Israel. And so they circle up and they say, where is this Jesus, this king of the Jews, to be born. And they say, well, it's to be born in Bethlehem. Now, a couple of things. First, this was probably one to two years following the birth of Jesus. I know it's a spoiler because the wise men, when they came, did not go to the barn. Mary and Joseph were now living in a house, but still in Bethlehem. The wise men weren't there with the sheep and the cattle and the poop and all the things. Um, so your little happy nativity scene is totally inaccurate. Blown out of the water, sorry. Also, uh, no angel at the barn either, if you read the story. Um, next year, I'm going to start making biblically accurate nativity scenes and start selling them so you can look ahead to that Christmas 2022. So I want to I wanna just look at the, the intent, the thought process, 
the motive of these wise men, so curious to me, so interesting that these men would do what they did. And I want to walk through this, these several curious things as we go through the story. First thing is the magi, the wise men. Uh, there's actually no mention there was three of them, by the way. I think that's helpful. There were enough of them to cause a scene in the city. I think this was a village of people. This was a group, a, 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 what do you call it, a, an entourage of people that showed up in town and enough for Herod to go, what's going on? There's a stir here. And they're going, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod goes, the king of what? You know, and he rises up like all worried and nervous and it creates this whole stir and this whole scene. And so I don't think this was actually just one or two or three guys. Imagine, by the way, if these guys from the east, after having traveled through the desert, showed up and said, there was a star and I, I need to find this king of the Jews. They would have run him out of town like he was a crazy person saying, you've been in the desert a little too long without water. I think there was a group of people there that were causing a scene that created enough influence in that town in that moment to make Herod really nervous. Let's talk about this journey for a second though. So the magi, the wise men, historically uh, were thought to be coming from Persia. Now I know you don't have a map in front of you, but just imagine this. We've got Jerusalem here that's kind of set right up uh, to the north uh, western side of the Dead Sea. And Persia is nearly 1,400 to 1,500 kilometers east of there. So this is a long journey. This isn't like they just decided to make a day trip and go over to Jerusalem. No, they saw a star. It says they saw the star in the east and they made the trip all the way across what would be modern day Iran. The desert, the hot desert, they would have traveled for a thousand or thousand fifteen hundred miles to get to this place in Jerusalem. It would be like if you started walking right now from Atascadero, just moving east and walked all the way to Texas in 1200 miles, you'd get to Amarillo. Imagine if you took that trip, it'd probably take you about four months. Now imagine doing that trip with all the food that you'd need for that journey, all the water that you'd need and apparently treasure chests full of gifts and all of the camels and the llamas and the whatever other animals it would take to kind of make that journey. This was not an easy trip. And so the question comes up for me, why in the world would these men travel four months to pay homage to the king of the Jews, not the king of Persia? They were not told that this was the king of Persia being born. They had no reason to enter into a different society, a different culture and say, we want to come see, we want to come worship the king of the Jews. Why in the world would they have done that? Well, I think I have a reason. If you go all the way back to the book of Numbers, let me refresh your memory on the story of Balaam. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But Balaam was like a, a magician, like a sorcerer. And so the king of, uh, of Moab tries to hire Balaam to put a curse on Israel because he feels threatened by Israel. And so Balak, who's the king of Moab, says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, have you put a curse on these people. And he offers them all this stuff in return. And yet Balaam feared the God of Israel. He was afraid of what might happen. And so he actually never cursed Israel. In fact, he blessed Israel. You can read about it. It's in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, I think. So you could read this whole story playing out. There's kind of these three different um, opportunities where Balaam has to speak over. But the point is, 
he ends up blessing Israel and he shares this oracle, an oracle that would have been written both for the people of Moab and the people of the eastern region in which they existed and the people of Israel. And so here's his oracle in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Now, let me give you a little history lesson. So Moab was this strong force just to the uh, east side of the Dead Sea and they were enemies of Israel. But what happened in the Babylonian Empire, which is hundreds of years after this took place, um, is that the Moab was conquered and scattered. And then the Persian Empire overtook Babylon and they built out this empire to be massive. It went all the way from the southern, kind of southwestern side of the region where Egypt was, all the way way out to the east where Persia was. It's just massive, expansive kingdom that Persia had developed and become. And if you remember your biblical history, they oppressed Israel in the process. There was a Persian exile. But in the, in the, uh, the history books or the, the oracles, so to speak, of Babylon and of Persia, they would have had this oracle written from Balaam and they would have remembered that someday out of the east, over the land of Jacob, a star will rise and the star comes with a scepter and the scepter will conquer the Moabites, will conquer the people that exist in the region. And so these Persians, these Magi, they have this oracle spinning in the back of their mind and they see a star and they're awed and wondered by it and realize this is going to be the king that's going to conquer. This is not just a king of the Jews. This is not just a, a baby born way off in the distance somewhere. No, no, no. This is going to be a conquering king. In fact, there are secular historians during this time, uh, both Tacitus and Josephus, spoke of rhetoric that was circulating during the season that there would in fact be a world dominion rising out of the east of Judea as the center. And it was not far-fetched then for them to believe that a world ruler would come from Jerusalem itself. Which is why I believe the Magi, the wise men, as they studied the stars, they watched the astronomical events that were taking place. And they see a star rising up out of the east over the city of David. They go straight to Jerusalem because they think, because of the history and the oracle, that there is a ruler coming that's going to create world dominion. And this ruler, this king, deserves our homage, our worship, our gifts, our treasure. And so they go because they want to be on the right team, on the winning team, they make the trip all the way out to Jerusalem and ultimately land in Bethlehem. And they follow this curious star, which is in and of itself a, a, an odd way for God to lead these men or women to come. In the, in the process, you know, there could have been any given way, there could have been a treasure map hidden in the words of scripture, right? But he chose to use a star. And, and you could choose to believe that it was simply a supernatural event. God could certainly have just placed a star in the sky and it appeared for a period of time and then it disappeared and it reappeared and they saw the star. But I believe these men studied the stars. They studied astronomy. They were watching for this. They saw a star appear 
in the East. Some people actually have chosen to believe that this was Haley's Comet, that which would have had a, uh, a specific appearance. Here's the interesting thing, just a kind of side note about astronomy, that you can actually um, look at the rhythm, look at the timing and uh, when things appear, how many years apart they are. And so you can basically take what happens in our modern day astronomy and you can project it backwards and kind of see when events would have taken place years and years and years, centuries and millennia ago, which is kind of fascinating. And so people have done that study and they've tried to figure out when would have Halley's Comet come by or um, when would have certain stars appeared and planets aligned and, and whatnot. But the most prominent theory is that there's a planet crossing Jupiter, Saturn and Jupiter cross and align and make this brilliant light in the sky. And astronomers have proved that right around the time of the birth of Jesus, uh, this would have happened three times consecutively within like a four month period. Really interesting. Again, side note, you could study that, look that up later. But the point is, are you curious? Because I am. When I read this stuff, I go, my goodness, what is God doing? What's he trying to teach to these magi, these wise men? What's he trying to teach to Israel and, the, and Herod in the process? And I read it and there's enough in there for me to pique my interest and ask, tell me more. What's God doing here? What's he trying to do through the star? What's he trying to do through the magi? And I get curious. And that's exactly where God wants us. To stay curious, just as these wise men, the magi, were curious. They were hungry. They wanted to know. They weren't content just to say, okay, yeah, I heard about a star, heard about a scepter, heard about a conquering king. I'm sure we'll get word at some point. I mean, if there's a world dominion that's going to grow, I'm sure I'll hear about it. We'll know when maybe the troops move in. <laughs> no, they weren't content with that. They went on a four-month journey across a hot desert to get to, to see Jesus, to be there when he arrived. They were willing to search. They were willing to be curious. Look for Jesus the way these men sought for the coming king. But when you and I look for Jesus today, we likely won't see him in the stars. That's maybe an obvious statement. We likely won't see him in a, in a stable, also obvious. But you likely won't see him either in a cathedral or on a cross or maybe even in the pews at a church building. Now, when we, when we decide to look for Jesus, when we make a concerted effort to stay curious, to keep searching, to keep seeking the truth, to keep knowing more about God. He's gonna be found as the answer for the problem of sin. That's where Jesus will be found. And he'll be found as the comfort to the pain that results of a fallen world. And he's gonna be found as satisfaction for our hunger. And he's gonna be found in the conscience of everyone who chooses to follow him. And he's gonna be found as a hope for a brighter future. And Jesus will be found not simply as king of the Jews, but king of the eternal creation, king of the universe. That's where Jesus will be found when you choose to seek him. And when you do so, your life steps into line with what God has for you in such a profound new identity, a new motive, a new purpose with new hope that everything else changes when you find Jesus. So be curious, Christian. Look for Jesus. And when you find him, give him the honor that he's due. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It says when they got there and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, I love that, <laughs> just the imagery of that statement. 
opening their treasures. Like, well, they brought a treasure chest. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this third curious thing to me is these gifts. We had these magi, these curious people that made this journey and a curious star that appeared in the east. And now we have these curious gifts that they brought and and opened up their treasure chests and present these to the king of the Jews. I wonder if they had any clue of the significance of these gifts. Let's think about it for a second. So you've got gold, which clearly represented both today and then royalty. That gold is precious. Gold represents something that transcends the normal average human being, right? We don't have gold in our homes. We don't have gold you know, in our, in our workplaces and in our cars. That's not a normal substance. It represents something greater than us, royalty often. And I wonder if they understood that the frankincense, the incense that was often offered to the gods represented the deity of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Christ. And I wonder if they had any clue when they brought myrrh, a spice that was used for embalming the dead if they knew that this king was born to die. I don't know. I don't know if it's coincidental. But these three important gifts brought for the king of the Jews to display the path he had before him of kingship, of lordship, and ultimately of sacrifice presented to him as a baby, as a child. There's another theory that says Mary and Joseph actually needed these gifts in order to take the journey they were about to embark on. If they were to go to Egypt, which we'll learn about next week, it would have been a really costly trip for them to travel from where they were in Bethlehem all the way down to Egypt. And so they probably would have sold the gold and used that as uh, seed money to be able to start their trip. And they would have carried myrrh and frankincense with them, both very small, light, and easy to travel. And ironically, when you get to Egypt, frankincense and myrrh were worth far more in Egypt than they were in Bethlehem probably funded their stay there, is one theory. But nonetheless, these gifts were offered to the king by men and women, people that had no clue of the gravity in which they were doing. But here's what's even more curious to me. The gift that can be overlooked, and I don't want you to miss this. We can read through this quickly and glance right past it. Go back to verse 11 with me. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. That was their gift, their first, foremost, and most significant gift. That the wise men, traveling for months, going to Jerusalem and saying, where's the king to be born? And they say to Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem and then they go looking for this Jesus and they walk into the room and immediately as they step into the presence of the creator of the universe, there's something awe-inspiring about the presence of Jesus that they throw themselves down in worship, maybe not acknowledging his lordship, maybe not understanding his deity, maybe not even knowing that he was ultimately to be the conquering king of all darkness for all time, but they knew that there was something different about this Jesus. When they discovered Jesus, when they found Jesus, they threw themselves to the floor in worship. It's ultimately our response of discovery. It should be. If you're a curious Christian, when you find Jesus, when you understand that you're in the presence 
of God Almighty. You bow down in reverence and realizing this is something and someone unique, someone like, unlike any other person, someone unlike any other God, someone like any other creator, any other redeemer. And we worship him for who he is when we discover who Jesus is. There's a scene uh, in this movie. Okay, so I know I said a couple weeks ago, you know, don't watch like Christian films and renditions of the Bible, you know, retelling and whatnot, uh, because it puts all these images in your mind. Um, and, and I still believe that's true, but there's a really good one. It's called The Son of God, and actually it's pretty inaccurate at times, <laughs> biblically speaking. So I'm not like highly recommending it, but the opening scene is beautiful. So they have this whole montage of uh, John writing his gospel and kind of narrating this whole process of how we got to the birth of Jesus. But in the opening scene, the Magi show up at uh, where Jesus is with Mary and Joseph. And not knowing anything about Mary and Joseph and not really knowing anything about Jesus, just knowing that he was born the king of the Jews, they come to offer their gifts. They step into the room and the first words, the first dialogue of the film, the Magi say, Lady, we believe your child is the king. What's his name? And Mary is kind of taken aback. She says, Jesus. His name is Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, these people fall with their faces to the ground. She looks up, catches eyes with Joseph in this film in confusion. Joseph looks back. It's as if they're asking with their body language, who is this child we've been given? And this worshipful response that happens in those opening moments of the birth of Christ, where the Magi show up and the name of Jesus is uttered in their presence and their initial reaction, their, their programmed response is to fall to their faces in the ground. It's a beautiful image of how we're supposed to discover Jesus and worship him. Be a curious Christian. Keep looking for Jesus. But you know what's more fascinating, even more curious to me than even the wise men and the story of them following the star and coming into Jerusalem and all that takes place in the story. You know what's more curious, more suspect to me than even the wise men is the unwise men in the story. And you might not have, you might not have picked up on it, but when they show up in Jerusalem, here's what happens. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, this is Herod, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for as it is written by the prophet. And they go on there. See, he, Herod brings these religious leaders. The Magi show up. They come to Jerusalem. They create a stir. It says that they were troubled. Herod was troubled. The town was troubled. And so there's this stir, this commotion going on in town. And so Herod brings together the religious leaders, the people who know the law, the people who follow God, the people who are supposedly the most Christian people or, or the most religious people in the room. And he brings them together and he says, hey, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they don't have to go looking for the answer because they know full well what it says in Micah chapter 5, Bethlehem. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, they say. And what happens next is the most haunting piece of scripture in this passage in that the Magi go, Herod sends them, and apparently no one else went with them. Think about that. 
It's this very passage, this very verse that drives my concern and fear for our culture and the day and age we live in where our questions are answered so quickly. These religious leaders didn't have to go Google the answer. They didn't have to go looking for it. They knew it. It was right there on their fingertips. They had all of the book of the law at their fingertips, right there in their memory, committed to their minds. They knew exactly where Jesus was to be born, and yet they were too apathetic to go looking for him in Bethlehem. And when I think about what happens in the following pages of this gospel, how these men treat Jesus, how the religious leaders of the law have hardened hearts in their reception of Jesus, I start to be really concerned for our culture, the day that we live in, with access to all the information. With nothing left to be found, we've found it all, right? We've discovered it all. It's all there. Nothing left to figure out. We've got answers for everything. And yet when the question comes, we go, I don't know. I'm sure it's there. I'm sure someone has discovered. And like these religious leaders, we allow for another group of people, people that weren't even Israelites, people that weren't even Jews, to go, I'm going to go find that guy. I'm going to go find the king of the Jews. I'm going to go find your king and I'm going to worship him because he deserves worship because I heard he's going to rule. He's going to bring dominion. He's going to reign. And yet there was a group of people that were apathetic enough to not even go looking, to not even go just as far as Bethlehem after these guys had traveled thousands of miles. Apathy has spread like an infectious disease in our world, numbing the minds of humanity with the lethal message, you don't need to go looking for answers. You have everything you need, and it's a lie. My fear isn't that the culture, the darkness of the world, Hollywood or Las Vegas or New York, that all those people, you know, those bad, bad people, they've become apathetic. No, my fear is that right here on the Central Coast, where we feel we have everything we need, we live in paradise with the best coastline, with the best food, with the best wine, with the best activities, and the best weather, that we've been given everything we need, that we don't need to leave here, we don't need to go looking for answers, that we're not hungry anymore, I've been fed, we're not seeking anymore, I'm not thirsty anymore, I've drank deep, I've got everything I I need and we're walking around with numbed minds because we filled it all with all the materials around the world that we haven't looked for Jesus, that we're stopped looking for Jesus, that we're not curious anymore, that we're not hungry anymore, that we're not searching anymore. And someone's coming from miles away looking for Jesus and they go, hey, have you, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen this king, this creator? Oh yeah, he's over there. And yet we send them on their way and we lose the discovery, the hunger that God has placed in every single human heart. I never like to give Satan too much credit because I think our own human cunning and depravity is perfectly capable of creating a big enough mess without the help of Satan. But in this case, it sure looks like a master plan, don't you think? 
to numb the hunger of a generation with countless volumes of content right at our fingertips, to condition us away from even working to find answers. An unwillingness even to search for truth, an inability to substantiate truth, an inability to distinguish what's a false version of something, to dismiss lies, and an apathy toward caring what's even true. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't fall into that trap, Christian. Stay curious. Stay hungry. Look for answers. Be a curious Christian. Look for Jesus. And when you find him, throw yourself at the ground and worship. Give him all the gifts. Open up your treasure chest and and bring everything you have at your disposal and say he is the king of the Jews and one day he's going to rise up with dominion over darkness and he's going to reign as king and I'm going to keep him on the throne where he rightfully deserves to be. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to become apathetic. I'm not going to get lazy. I'm not going to stop looking. I'm not going to stop discovering. I want to keep finding Jesus and seeing Jesus and learning Jesus and and discovering Jesus and realizing what he brought for humanity. Be a curious Christian. Throw yourself before the throne of Christ in recognition of his kingship, his lordship, his humanity, and his eternal reign. Be curious. Wise men still seek him. Let's pray. God, we're so guilty, so capable of relaxing into a mind-numbing culture where we just don't have to work very hard to find information anymore. We don't have to make a four-month journey across the desert. We can just stop by any church on the corner. We can just open up our app and turn on any message, look up any podcast. God, forgive us. God, may we search. May we scour the pages of Scripture for more truth, more information, more knowledge of you to know you, to know your word, to let it change us and to drive us. God, keep us curious. Keep us looking. Keep us hungry. May we never be satisfied with what we have in this life. As far as information goes, may we always be looking for more. Always be looking for truth. Always be dismissing lies and separating truth from falsehood so that we can come before you knowing who you are in all your fullness, in all your glory, and worship you appropriately with reverence and respect. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.